Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 23 of the Convo podcast uh, entitled Hijacking a Generation, 20 Years of the War on Terror. Inshallah, in this episode, we will be looking at the, we'll, look, we'll be looking back at the last 20 years of this phenomenon called the War on Terror, on its implications, uh, and specifically focusing on the implications that it's had on the mindset of your average Muslim, yourself and myself. Uh, we have with us um, a couple of uh, highly esteemed uh, honourable guests that we are very, very um, happy to have with us tonight. Inshallah, if my co-host can introduce them. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, everyone. Thank you very much for tuning in. And I certainly do have uh, the pleasure of introducing our guests today. So we've got with us Dr. Asim Qureshi, who is the research director of advocacy group CAGE, who does some very, very commendable work, mashallah. Uh, he's specialized in investigating the impact of counter-terrorism practices worldwide since 2003. Uh, he has authored a range of reports, uh, academic journals and articles. Uh, he's also the author of the book Rules of the Game, Detention, Deportation and Disappearance, as well as the more recent publication, if I'm not mistaken, A Virtue of Disobedience. So thank you very much, Dr. Asim. We've also got with us brother Zulfikar Muhammad Sharif. Uh, he's a writer on Islam, politics and international relations. Uh, he's also a Singaporean political activist who was jailed without trial for four and a half years in solitary confinement to boot. Uh, he was accused of supporting terrorism by the Singaporean government and he was only recently released in November of last year. So thank you very much for joining us. And lastly, we have brother Kamran Khalid, who is a lawyer, a sessional academic and executive member of the Muslim Legal Network. Uh, he is based in Sydney and his thesis is on Pakistan's counterterrorism framework. Uh, he also has other research areas, including Islamic law in the Muslim world, South Asian politics and post-colonial thought. So that was a lot to rattle off for our guests, but Jazakallah Khair, thank you very, very much uh, to all of you for joining us. And um, I think I can uh, speak for our audience as well as um, us as a host. Uh, we're very, very excited for this discussion to be happening. It's a very timely discussion, obviously, coming uh, soon after the 20-year mark uh, of the September 11 issue and then obviously the war on terror that uh, immediately followed. <laughs> but I guess we can start with uh, just asking for some of your sort of your broad thoughts or what would you say if someone was to ask you about the war on terror, broadly speaking? Now, obviously, there is very much that can be said. Um, and in this discussion, we will narrow it down. But if you were to sort of give a nutshell reading of the war on terror and how you've come to experience it and how it's impacted you, what would be your take on that? Um, Asim, perhaps you can uh, start with yourself. I mean, to put it very simply, I think... Um it was um, a very deliberate targeting of Muslims in a variety of kind of domestic and international contexts. Um, you know, Muslims being portrayed as um, seditious, as treacherous, as potential threats to whatever society that they lived in and into uh, towards uh, an international order. So I think if you wanted to summarize it, because we, as you said, we could just go on about this for a very, very long time because, you know, I've um, represented people from, you know, kind of 
places from Guan, like Guantanamo Bay in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, across the Balkans and Africa. So like we could talk about the, the various elements of it almost endlessly. But if you wanted to synthesize that, then of course I would say it's a, it's a targeting of, of Muslims as, as potential suspects. Um, Jazakallah thank you very much. Um, Brother Zulfikar, you had obviously, as we alluded to in our introduction, um, you had a very specific personal experience um, brought about by this war on terror and the narrative that it puts forward. Um, perhaps you could, alongside your broad uh, thoughts on it, give us a bit of background on that as well. Assalamualaikum. Um, I think in, re- in relation to the first point about the the effect of the war on terror. Um, I just had to to take it back, regardless of who was responsible. Let's let's assume that whatever has been said about the war on terror and the narrative that was created was true. Now, my position is that every society has a right to defend itself. Every society has a right to feel secure, and that applies not just to Muslims, it applies to, to the United States, it applies to Australia, and every society has that right to defend itself. The question is, how do you create that sense of security for yourself? Do you create that sense of security by perpetuating violence and prolonging violence, or do you, do you get that sense of security and safety by trying to create a more understanding um, relationship with, with the others that you may think that may represent a threat to you. So if, let's say, whatever was said about September 11th was true, the action that came out of that did not help to create more safety or more security for the United States or anyone else. So that whole whole premise falls because it creates more violence and it creates more difficulties for everyone. Now, on, on, on my personal part, what I also, also see is this. We have been defeated in terms of the, the language of, of our society and our beliefs. What I noticed earlier was that even when we speak about Islam, it becomes uh, a speech that uh, is problematized. So when you talk about Sharia, it becomes as if you're trying to impose it on others. It becomes something that is violent. It becomes something that is that seeks destruction. Even when you talk about things that are good within Islam, it becomes this, the narrative that was created was that. So in 26, 2014, I was against the Bashar al-Assad government um, because it was a, a murderous tyrant. You know, this, this was what the Bashar, was, Bashar government was. So I was against that. Um, and when this crazy group ISIS came on, I, at that time I thought that you no, know, they were just trying to fight and trying to get rid of this dictator. Um, so I thought, yeah, that was good. When I realized that they were doing crazy things, I I said that no, this is wrong, and I criticized them. But that because I was also a political activist in Singapore, and there was no real justification for the Singapore government to take action against me. But that little bit of point where I criticized Bashar and then I said that, you know, all these things that was going on, that became a justification for uh, authoritarian regimes to use against uh, the Muslims. Mm. And it became something that is is um, not just valuable, but some, something that they can use. So they start to, to create this, this narrative that those who speak against uh, the, the system that exists 
becomes a threat to society, become so they can be accused of being terrorists. So on the personal level, that's it. That all these things are, are used to justify action against Muslims. And at the same time, we as a society, we have lost a Muslim society. We have lost the sense, the the narrative. We we cannot even talk about Islam as if it's something good. Yeah. Uh, Brother Kamran, if you want to just have some opening words and your thoughts generally on the matter. Um, sorry, and I'll chime in there as well. Brother Kamran, you were at the commencement of the war on terror. You were in Pakistan, right? That's right. So maybe you can give us, um, especially because Afghanistan being right next door and sort of the immediate action towards Afghanistan by the Americans, maybe you can give us a bit of that take as well. Yeah, sure. Um, Salaam alaikum, everyone, and Jazakallah khair for um, giving me the opportunity to speak on this very important topic. Um, I'll... I'll, I'll let you know my, my thoughts about the global framework, and and then and then shift my words towards um, towards what happened in Pakistan. There, there seems to be what if 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 I was to describe the war on terror in my own terms, I would say that there is a concern about secrecy in general, uh, the secrecy with which, especially, power was accumulated uh, behind shadows in the hands of what we what we can call the deep state, you know, the military generals, the contractors, the intelligence agencies. And it kind of started right after 9-11. It started in the U.S. Uh, we saw the same in our Muslim world as well. I mean, if you talk about the U.S., you know, within a week after the 9-11, the, um, the, the Congress delegated the authority to go to war to, to President Bush, um, which was a, um, a very unique decision, the authorization for, for the use of military force. Um, only one um, lawmaker, a congresswoman, Barbara Lee, voted against that, and she had to face uh, death threats and whatnot and um, a lot of backlash. Um, on, on the back of that, then dozens of other orders were signed in the coming years uh, by the White House officials and, and, and you know, the, the U.S. administration itself, giving more power to CIA, giving more power to U.S. military, the, the special operations, the Joint Special Operations Command and whatnot, um, basically to all those people who remain out of the public eye, who are not answerable to the parliament or directly accountable to the public, who can't be scrutinized by the media and so on and so forth. Um, and, and the same we saw in, in the Muslim world, um, in a, if, you, if you talk about Pakistan, Pakistan already had an issue um, pretty much since inception with the deep state. Uh, the, yeah. the deep state pretty much controls uh, most of the political affairs of the country, even to this day. And that only got worse after 9-11. Um, I mean, personally, I was, uh, um, I was in, in um, um, the early years of my high school, so I was too young to be politically aware of, at, at the time of the Afghan, yeah. um, uh, the Afghan war um, in 2001. But I, I remember the, the, the community response, the fear, the anxiety which was there in the public, um, we were told that the U.S. had won Pakistan. Um, Richard Holbrook, who was the Deputy Secretary of State at that, at that time, he had told a Pakistani um, um, ISI chief that uh, you're ready to be born back to the Stone Age if you don't help us. Yes, I remember. So that you, yeah. have to be, you have to be with us. Uh, if you're not with us, then, you know, be ready to, to, to face this kind of wrath. Um, and so there was... Uh, that sort of fear among the community, which was partly perpetuated by all, our own leaders as well, that U.S. Um, is going to strike us if we don't uh, agree to whatever they say and take part in this war on terror. And it's not going to be the U.S., it's going to be the U.S. and India 
which will form an alliance and strike. We were told that you know you, India has already agreed to give bases in uh, uh, in in in, in Amritsar and you know whatnot. And so uh, Musharraf used the, uh, the the famous phrase phrase of wounded bear, right? So the U.S. is acting like a wounded bear. And it can, you know, strike anyone. So it's it's good for us. It's in the national interest. Uh, the the catchphrase, which is used so many times in the uh, in the counterterrorism, um, that we have to just go on with the war on terror and uh, do what the U.S. says. So obviously, when once Pakistan sided with the U.S., there was a bit of a sense of relief. There was also aid coming in. You know, the, the media was liberalized, and there was this period of what Musharraf called the enlightened moderation, where, where yes, Islam yes. was sort of liberalized, Western culture was promoted and uh, through media and whatnot. Um, so there were, everyone was kind of like, in the initial years, uh, people were like in the, um, in the prosperity high, uh, so as to speak. Little did we know, um, and, and, and as things started to emerge later, that people were getting you know, picked up, uh, the agencies were picking up people and shipping them off to Guantanamo Bay. Um, People in Balochistan, in Fatah, Pashtuns and the Baloch, people who live on the peripheries, they were uh, getting extrajudicially killed. Mm-hmm. Drone attacks had started in the country and whatnot. So all of these details started to emerge later um, just because there was too much power which was in the hands of people who were just not open to the public, not, yeah. not um, answerable to anyone. Yeah. Those thoughts. Um, um, Hamza, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. You, you were about to say something. Yeah. So, uh, look, I just wanted to sort of following on from that, and Kamran, you've uh, given us a good sort of um, uh, move into uh, what we wanted to look at further, which was that so September 11 happens, and almost instantaneously, there's declarations of war. The US is now going to head into Afghanistan. And Muslims the world over now have to deal with this reality that, okay, there's going to be boots on the ground in the Muslim world. Um, It's not as though that reality is new to Muslims, unfortunately, but this was sort of a new phase, right? It was this renewed push. Um, And I just want to ask, how did communities respond to that? Now, I remember when it happened, I was still quite young, primary school, so it didn't really click to me, but I do you remember feeling that there was an agitation and anxiety on the streets with Muslims? Just stay on the down low. Things aren't great for us at the moment. We need to sort of be in the background. Um, even though sentimentally, they weren't happy. Muslims were not happy that this is happening. Um, Asim, you were obviously in the UK at that time, I assume. Um, what was the feeling there when there was now a global war effort, especially with the whole you're either with us or against us coalition of the willing all that being thrown onto Muslims. What was the feeling? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that um, people generally were feeling quite anxious about um, what had happened. I think a lot of people could see that there was going to be some kind of backlash to uh, an incident like this. Um, and it was it was interesting, of course, right, because, you know, this wasn't... Um, in, in the Muslim imagination, you know, there were so many other tragedies that were going on, you know, around the Muslim world in even the decade, just the yep. decade prior to this. And so it's not like we weren't used to seeing tragedies taking place and, you know, kind of innocent lives being lost. This was part of the, um, you know, part of the vernacular yep. of, 
the unfortunate geopolitics that were going on in the world. And so this felt like a slightly different moment, you know, kind of felt like in, in some ways um, immediately Islam was under attack. There were so many opinion editorials coming out. For those of us who were a little bit older, maybe we were, we were reading this stuff. We could see that this, there was an intensification of hostility towards Muslims in Islam. You know, many of us were familiar already with kind of orientalist tropes about Muslims, yeah. but this was kind of largely subsumed within a general racist um, kind of vernacular that, you, you know, especially kind of Europeans and Americans had towards any, any person of color. It wasn't just us, right? Like, you know, there was just kind of pervasive racism that was taking place. 9-11 puts a focus on us. Like it's almost like a magnification of who we are. But now we're being viewed. Now we're, we're finally being seen. Up until this point, Muslims were largely living very, very neoliberal lives, right? Mm. Um, you know, they were kind of socially conservative, but very much embedded in kind of structures of capitalism. Um, you know, they wanted a, a very Western lifestyle, but a halal version of it, effectively. Yeah, yeah. So whatever, whatever it was that was going on, they would just embed themselves in society. So they weren't prepared in many ways, for the force of the reaction that would take place. Now, young, younger people, people in university, especially people like myself, you know, we became um, very much uh, aware and conscious of, you know, in an increasing way. I mean, you know, there are many of us who had lived through Bosnia. We understood what yeah, was going yeah. on there. You know, we, had, you know, we were familiar with what was going on, but this, there was an intensification for us because of 9-11, but our parents' generation, many of them were a bit more reticent. Alhamdulillah, not my own parents, uh, who were very supportive of my, of my change of, of career or at least pathway towards trying to, to help Muslims. But, you know, I came across many, 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 many parents who yeah. um, were extremely troubled and would encourage their children not to stand out in any way, whether it was in the way that they superficially looked by keeping beards or wearing hijab or expressing their politics um, within university um, spaces or school spaces. So there was almost like the self-censoring taking place. Yes. This is where that trauma really begins. The idea that somehow you could invisibilize yourself in terms of the perception that you are a threat, that somehow as an individual you could overcome the, the widespread hostility that existed. And of course, this was kind of self-cannibalistic because ultimately by not organizing, by not um, presenting a strong face, by apologizing, what we were doing is constantly re reaffirming everything that they already believed yeah, about us. Yeah. And so unfortunately, the response to 9-11 from Muslim communities around the world, you know, was, um, was woeful at best. And in some ways, it's understandable because people were, went into the self-preservation mode, but it didn't make it right. And it, and it had a very negative impact on the long-term well-being of our yeah. communities. And so the world in which a younger generation, a generation like yours, grew up in, when it became conscious, it never knew a pre-9-11 world as such. Yeah. Um, you know, it was only ever we are facing a constant hostility in the media by politicians, by the police, by kind of, um, you know, even kind of capitalist industries through their surveillance, you know, kind of surveillance capitalism, like almost it's ubiquitous. 
in every single sector of society, that generation, the 9-11 generation, the ones who were maybe like below the age of 10 when it took place, they grew up in a world where they never even saw what life was like before or never understood what life was like before that. When they came into understanding, it's like, well, you know, we're, we're a threat. That's how we're perceived. So yeah, I think that it's particularly troubling for them. Yeah, and I guess that's um, that's a good point to mention. That That's why we've chosen to title this podcast Hijacking a Generation because it's an entire generation that's been brought up and grown into and lived and experienced nothing but a war on terror where their identities have been not just under the microscope but in the crosshairs. Um, and that's going to have serious implications and that's why we wanted to look at the mindset. And speaking of mindsets, um, I, I'll direct this to Brother um, Zulfikar. Um, so Asim was described about, uh, in fact, mentioned that our response was somewhat woeful, like it was just sort of a bit all over the place, a bit defensive, and it wasn't really um, a strong, united kind of thing. Um, but in the face of this onslaught, what could we say about the concept of our global ummah, about sort of the unity of Muslims? Did perhaps this antagonism stoke that a little or, you know, was that sort of something that was on people's minds? What can we say about that? Um, I would just like to add on to what Asim said earlier. Um, I was 30 when uh, September, September 11th mm. happened, so I wasn't young. Uh, so I remember the world how it, as, how it was uh, prior to September 11th. Um, but what what I see as one of the biggest effects of um, September 11th and, and the war on terror in relation to our community is that we are internalizing this sense of, of uh, defeatedness. So we are weak and we see ourselves as being weak. And because of that, there's nothing else that we can do apart from complying with what someone else wants us to do. So I think that is one of the biggest problems that we have. And I'm not talking about being weak militarily or economically. I'm talking about ideationally. We are defeated ideationally. We do not see that there are other ways for us to, to engage. We do not see that there are that we can pursue our interests. We do not see that we can argue and we can lobby, we can campaign, we can make changes. We do not see that we have the agency we have the ability and the strength to change this world to make it a better place as how we as Muslims understand it to be. You know, if we see ourselves as as Ummah, that we are the best of nations, yeah. we've got something to bring to this world and that we can bring this this beauty, this this wonderful thing that's, that we know as Islam. And yet we see that, you know what, we are under attack. There's, there's all this power against us. There's nothing that we can do. So we just accept whatever that they tell us to do. So in, for example, in Singapore, I'm, I'm an Australian citizen too, and in Singapore, right soon after the September 11th, um, the Singapore government arrested this group of people uh, claimed that they are uh, terrorists. Uh, they've been detained for almost 20 years now. Not, not, uh, still detained. Trial. Yeah, there's, there's still a, a number of them still in detention oh, and without yeah. trial. Uh, I do not know whether they were involved in violence or, or not, the thing is that we do not know, right? So there, there's no question. And the thing that I, I find to be very interesting is that the Muslim community leaders has refused to even engage on this issue. Mm. So 
what I also see is that there is now this this greater sense of of uh, disengagement between the community leaders and the the ground. That the ground we are trying to move a bit more. You know that we we want to to be heard. We want to to make changes. We see all these problems and we want to be united again. But the Muslim leaders they they feel that they are being strategic. Uh, mm-hmm. So they work with the government. They try to please. The, yeah. the powers and the authorities, and because of that, there, there's that that break, that break between the Muslim community leaders and the Muslim ground. That's what I see. Um, so, in, for example, in Singapore, soon after the the arrest, the secret police um, worked with a group of of uh, Shuyu, and mm-hmm. uh, they created this group called the RRG, the Religious Rehabilitation Group, whose job is to rehabilitate suppose to rehabilitate this. Yeah. Uh, the clean terrorists. But at the same time, this RRG defines the way that Muslims are supposed, are supposed to behave in relation to the state, in relation to what the Sharia is, in relation to the concepts of the global ummah. So now we are told that, you know what, there's no such thing that we are supposed yeah. to, to give our, our allegiance solely to, to the government of the day. And the government has been around for 60 years. It's the same one-party uh, government. So we are supposed to give our, our allegiance to them. So what we have is that this group of of Muslim leaders who now work closely with the government and they are telling us how we are supposed to behave in relation to what the government wants. And, and Brother yeah. Sulfikar, sorry to interrupt, but that's, you know, you live in Australia, you live in Melbourne yourself. That's essentially been the model that's been applied everywhere around the world. Yeah. It starts yeah. on a question of law and it just scope creeps into a question of values and beliefs and you know, um, like um, in the UK and in Australia, we had that question of, are you British or Muslim? Are you Australian? Are you Muslim? Um, but it- I, I guess this can lead us to, um, uh, Brother Kamran, you've got an interest specifically in uh, the Pakistani government's anti-terror response. Now, you know, most of us um, were sitting in the Western world uh, experiencing that reality of, are you British, Muslim, Australian, Muslim, whatever else? What was the local kind of policy from the Pakistani government, especially considering that, you know, in the Muslim world with the war in Afghanistan happening right next door, what policy was being adopted there in this sort of counter-terrorism world? Yeah, look, uh, I think, I think on, a, on a community level, there was, the, the, there was very little information, first of all, which was being shared, right? The, the, most of the information which was being shared was mostly through fear and anxiety that the U.S., um, is uh, as I said before, is is acting like a wounded bear, and it's just going to eat us all up. So we just have to give in. We just have to listen to their demands. We heard of some um, of of a uh, of a document having seven demands, which were shared with the leadership um, by the U.S. and um, we should have said yes to basically all of them, which included yeah. things like access to bases and things like that. Um, but what we what we found out in the years coming later is that the, the the parameters of the Pakistan's assistance to the U.S. were pretty broader than than even those original seven demands. So things like drone attacks, and things like secretly uh, you know picking people up and and making them then disappear in the middle of the night, either shipping them to uh, 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 putting them on a plane to. To Cuba or or just uh, putting them in Bagram in Afghanistan or, or somewhere else, um, we we were we didn't know that that was happening. We didn't know that that the drone attacks were happening. We didn't know that uh, the, the American troops were already um, starting to begin ground raids in the northwestern uh, part of Pakistan. So 
all of this was was kept hidden from the public eye and purpose mm. uh, and deliberately so because obviously Pakistan has a history of of uh, well, um, on a political level, it had a history of alliance with the Taliban um, the regime, um, but on, on the societal level, obviously, because more than 95% of people are uh, are Muslims, then there was going to be a strong anger of, of what yeah, was happening yeah. next door. And especially when Iraq uh, invasion happened, at the time of Afghanistan, people were really scared. Um, but when Iraq invasion happened, people sort of started to see through this agenda of targeting Muslims worldwide, not just in Afghanistan. And at that time, people were more, um, um, I suppose, angrier than than quiet. And that's why initially the government had decided to send some troops um, as part of coalition in Iraq, um, but then uh, decided against that because um, the, the the public sentiment at that time was this was that this this war is just senselessly spreading um, over mm. the Muslim world. Um, in terms of the political leadership of, of the Muslim world, um, people in Pakistan were, um, were generally disappointed, uh, or, or I, w- I would say they didn't expect much from them anyway. Mm. Um, they were called from religious circles, obviously, to unify and, and you know, to fight the, uh, the American, um, um, you know, the American devil and whatnot, but no one really saw any unity coming. Um, the leaders of Muslim Ummah were, were, you know, bending over backwards not to be on the wrong side of, of the U.S. There were only yeah. three countries at that time who, who were recognizing the Taliban government, um, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and, and UAE. And all three of them um, sided with the, um, with the U.S. in this, um, in this project. Um, the CIA outsourced a lot of snatching and grabbing of, of uh, Al-Qaeda suspects and other terrorist su- suspects to Muslim countries. So countries like Jordan, Egypt. Pakistan, even Libya initially, their secret service agencies were, you know, picking people up and interrogating on behalf of CIA. Um, one month before the U.S. invasion, we uh, we later found out that um, um, the Crown Prince of Dubai gave an airstrip near near Kandahar, which he had kept for hunting purposes, to the uh, the the U.S. Um, the Council General in Dubai and say, you know, it's yours, do whatever you want to do. And then we found out later that U.S. troops came by boat um, and they were shipped in the middle of the night through Pakistan into that um, uh, into an airbase and then flown from there over to the secret airbase in um, in Kandahar around November when uh, after the um, the initial airstrikes uh, led into the ground war in Afghanistan so there was a lot of secrecy and 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 the the idea was just like you know you just have to give in uh, mm. and and part of that I would say I had also to do with our leadership seeking international legitimacy. I mean, General Musharraf had only come into power two years before that through a, through a, um, um, a coup. Um, so just like his, um, his predecessor dictator Zia, how he served the U.S. interest during Cold War, uh, fighting communism in Afghanistan, um, this time Musharraf saw an opportunity that by allying, uh, aligning with the U.S., uh, he would be able to... Um, um, to gain the international legitimacy, gain the international aid, um, and you know promote himself as as the friend of the free world, and you know um, things will get better for him uh, domestically, which they did for uh, uh, for a long time before, obviously uh, when when started things started to emerge, everything started to fall if apart. I can, if uh, I can just uh, interject for a second, yep. that's all very intriguing. It actually, just just a thought because. Um, 
it, it kind of brings together everything that uh, you know your co-guests are saying. Uh, Zulfikar, you were talking about this re, uh, rehabilitation program, religious rehabilitation program, Singapore, which is about you know bringing together, you know, moving away from the legal aspect of it and telling people who they're meant to be in life. You know, you Cameron, um, you talk about CIA covert operations, the media and the government in bed together in Pakistan, trying to keep the public in the dark. And I suppose you know. Coming full circle, it brings us back to what you said, Asim, at the very beginning, which is that, you know, the war on terror is essentially this global campaign to target the very essence of what it means to be a Muslim. Um, my question to you, uh, Dr. Asim, is do you actually think that, you know, I suppose historically, in the last 20 years, but also today, if that's the scope of this global campaign, um, do people realize, have has the, you know, as a, as a, as a leading member of, the, of an NGO, your role is to work to raise awareness. Do you feel people have, have woken up in these 20 years to the, the scale of this global campaign against the very essence of what it means to be a Muslim? Yes and no. I mean, I think um, a lot of Muslims realize that um, there are like, grave problems that are going on in the Muslim world. Um, one of the, the, the great saving graces of the Muslim Ummah is that it recognizes when parts of it are in trouble and they do make da'a. You know, I've been in like the most remote regions of the Muslim world, Northeast Kenya, Northwest Pakistan, you know, just like lots of different kind mm. of remote areas, met people, you know, completely, um, you know, under, you know, who have low socioeconomic prospects in life, um, to put it um, bluntly. But and their knowledge and the way that they connect with what is going on in the Muslim world is unbelievable. Like you would never, you know, imagine that, you know, when their daily concern is whether or not rain is going to fall from the sky, that they still have the concerns of what's going on in Palestine, what's going on in Iraq, what's going on in Syria, very much at the top of their minds. You know, they they you know they use qunut and they use various forms of dua uh, to to ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to assist these people, and that that is that is a huge saving grace yes. that we have um, in relation to the general masses of the Muslims around the world, whether they're men, women, or children. Alhamdulillah, we. We have that connectivity. Um, saying that, we are so structurally disenfranchised because of how governance within the Muslim world works and the way that geopolitics plays such a huge role in the way in which our, our states operate that politically making the shift from something that, that, ha that you have in your heart to actual mobilization is much more difficult. And so people, a large part of the Muslim world will resolve themselves to this kind of like, make dua, do what I can, give charity as kind of like the bare minimum of the way that they could possibly operate. And after that, it's just like, okay, you know, I've, I've done what I can. Now I have to just do as much as, I, you know, get, get whatever I can out of this very, very problematic system that I live in. Yeah. But fundamentally, they know and understand the problems that are going on. Fundamentally, they know that they live in a time that is that is problematic, but they know that, um, you know, kind of 
secularism, nationalism are, are key issues. They know that the war on terror exists. They know that, that Palestine is under assault. They know um, enough about kind of American hegemony around the world. They, 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 they feel for the Uyghur in China. So we, we have all of these things. But because of how demobilized we are, it makes it much more difficult to then say, you know, that awareness carries through at the level of action. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's a problem with the way that governance works in the Muslim world, unfortunately. And that leadership filters down and down to, to the general masses. And, and I guess that um, that's, yeah, as you rightly identify, that's where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. And um, organisations such as yours, such as CAGE, um, who do some really, really good work, mashallah, have been active in this space. And, you know, I guess that's where we, we all need to ask those kinds of critical questions of ourselves as Muslims. Are we just going to sort of make that dialogue, take that sort of level one foundational approach and then sort of leave it in the hands of Allah? Or are we going to try and engage ourselves um, a little more forcefully and fruitfully, um, so to speak? Um, before moving on any further, I wanted to ask Brother Zulfikar, um, I sort of alluded to this before, but I wanted to ask you specifically about um, your imprisonment. So you were imprisoned for uh, four and a half years in Singapore on those charges that you mentioned um, related to, that's if they were even charges, those accusations um, related to your support for the resistance against Bashar al-Assad. Um, could you talk us through sort of what you experienced, how it occurred, um, it was from the uh, Singaporean secret police as well, if we understand correctly. Um, in this, this is the first time I I ever spoke about this. No, um, in uh, 2014, when again when all these things were going on, um, there was also an attack on on on. Palestine by Israel. So a Singaporean man put up a Palestinian flag in front of his house. And he was told by the Singapore police that, you know, you're not allowed to put on put up the 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 state the flag of another state in Singapore. So I checked the laws and said, yeah, that's that's true. So I said, why why don't I put it on Facebook? Why don't we then put up the Shahada flag? Because it's this the flag of the Ummah. Uh, in to show our solidarity with Palestine. They use that to accuse me of supporting ISIS. Oh, goodness me. This is not the ISIS flight. Not the ISIS flight. This is the the normal Shahada flight, right? So that became the basis, and it was publicized all over Singapore and so on. So that became the basis of the um, four four years and four months detention. Um, But 90% of the discussions that I have in, in detention was, don't criticize the government. So the main thing that they they were trying to get me to 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 rehab uh, me are, are these discussions that you had with government representatives or who were these psychologists, uh, psychologists, uh, secret police officers? The main thing was don't seek change, respect the status quo, don't don't question the government. In fact, in May last year, uh, right a few months before I was released, they said the psychologist told me that he did not want me to be released earlier. And asked him why. He said, because I, th- I think you will still re- criticize the government. Now I feel confident that you will not. Right. Oh, so that was oh. the basis. So what happens is that all this, it, it doesn't matter anymore um, what they need to prove because you're a Muslim. 
and because they can try, they in some way they can show that you support terror, um, that became the basis to silence you. And a lot of Muslims that I know, um, whether in Singapore or outside of Singapore, have silenced themselves because they are worried that they'll be implicated and they they, they will get into trouble. So that that was one of the biggest things that I see. And again, I think that uh, referring to what Asim said earlier, um, I believe in the democratization of society, and that the society we need to move, right? And that we need we need to activate the the people. Um, the problem that we have right now is a problem of in terms of the leadership, and that the leadership is getting delegitimized, because as long and as far as they keep on just parroting whatever that the government wants them to say and do they are going to lose the respect and they're going to lose the support of the common people. And I think that is getting, happening more and more. And I think that as as much or as long as they keep on doing that, they're going to lose support. And those who of us, like for me, I'm not I'm not equipped to become a religious leader. I, I'm, I'm not a, a, a sheikh, right? I study politics. I study international relations. Uh, I was in my final year of international relations PhD. Uh, two months before, two months after I was detained, my university uh, terminated my candidacy because of they said that oh. it's because of the the letter received was because of the the, the detention and the accusations. So my study was is politics and international relations. I'm not a sheikh, so I don't have the the qualifications to lead the community. But what's happening is that is the people like us who are now trying to work with the, the ground and the community that have been forced to accept part of that responsibility. And I think it's not right. I think that the Muslim community, the leaders, the, the shuyu, the, the political leaders, they need to start to, to represent really what we have to say and what we feel and to, to become our strength instead of accepting and internalizing the weakness. Yeah, um, I think, um, Kamran, you, you alluded to that as well earlier about um, in Pakistani society as well. Um, that there was the sort of the the gap, as you can sort of mention, between the leadership and the people and the different um, thoughts that were going on. So I think that that is emerging as sort of um, a trend, a trend throughout sort of the local policies that have been implemented towards uh, communities in light of the war on terror. Um, I wanted to also ask um, ask him just quickly, not maybe not too much detail on this one, but um, you guys. With regards to leadership, you in the UK you had the prevent policy. Now um, we got sort of the the leftovers and the breadcrumbs of prevent in Australia, and we got very similar policies implemented on our end as well. Um, but can you talk us through sort of not just the way that prevent tried to entice Muslim leaders and community figures and so forth, um, but also the way that it would try and coerce and force leadership to comply and, and the kind of impact that that had on Muslim community leadership, but also on the average Muslim as well. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a very uh, difficult relationship that the Muslim community in the UK has had with Prevent. Um, ostensibly, it was brought in to um, as, a, as a soft form of counter-terrorism yep, yep. to stop people from becoming terrorists in the future. But of course, this requires crystal ball gazing exercise. But the, the key point about prevent really is that what they were effectively saying is that we want to identify who might be a threat in the future. But in order to do that, what you have to do is that you you don't just look at traditional policing and see whether or not somebody is building a bomb or if they're mm. kind of like trying to 
uh, accrue a cache of weapons. What they do instead is that they have to pathologize um, our behaviors and our beliefs in order to um, think that risk through. Mm. So all of a sudden, if you start wearing a hijab or if you grow your beard or if you start praying five times the, a day... The conveyor belt idea. Right. I mean, that's where it starts, um, this idea that there are there are step-by-step processes of, of so-called radicalization. And the, the problem with... One of the key problems with that is that when you leave that in the hands of um, the public sector, so doctors, nurses, dentists... Um, you know, pharmacists, teachers, university yeah. lecturers to play that role of identifying who is a potential future threat. You're not just doing it based off of a list. You're also bringing into the room the pervasive, pervasiveness of racism that exists yeah. in society. So if, if your two most popular newspapers um, are two of the most racist newspapers in the world yeah. um, and you know, your politicians have a racist discourse and the media has a racist discourse and, uh, you know, kind of criminal justice has a racist discourse around, you know, kind of people of colour more generally, but Muslims in the context of the war and terror specifically, then when they make assumptions about us in the public sector space, they are already prepped at the back of their minds to see us as potential threats. So all of a sudden expressing opinion about Palestine doesn't just become part of the conversation about activism for different causes in the UK. It becomes, becomes an indicator of, yeah. right, of, da- of dangerousness, of future dangerousness. Um, and all of this is extremely unscientific. And the people who invented the science behind it say to themselves that you can't use it to predict any kind of accuracy in relation yeah. to whether... Uh, I think you, you labelled it, um, or Cage perhaps labelled it pre-crime, the science of pre-crime. I was we um, didn't. on YouTube. We didn't. Yeah. Gov- that government, uh, no. Oh, I mean, we wrote that report, but the, yeah. the, the term pre-crime, which was popularised by Philip K. Dick and, you know, and the movie version, it's called Minority yeah. Report, right, uh, from his uh, essay, uh, it's the government that uses that themselves. When you speak to prevent officials, mm. they, they talk about pre-criminal behavior if you look at the so they actually adopt the terminology of pre-crime yeah absolutely and that's why that, it, kind of, it sounds, disto- it sounds dystopian, but they, yep. they, they, they use it themselves which makes the whole thing you know even more bizarre uh, than it already is um, so what, what sorry if you could just narrow that down to the leadership question so yeah. carrot and stick sort of coercing or pushing or tempting leadership to now play that role and that right. can create tensions so, in Muslim communities. One of the things that they did is that they they removed all of the traditional funding sources for a lot of the primary services that, that Muslim community organizations give, whether it's alcohol, drugs, domestic yeah. violence, so on and so forth, right? Women's rights issues. And they said, if you want access to funding to do any of this work, we can make that funding available to you. And we can even give you even more. But you have to get it through this pot which is prevent. Mm. Yeah, and there's yeah. people like Fahid Qureshi, uh, no relation, but uh, he's an academic. He's done some really no relation work. to me either. <laughs> he's done some really brilliant work uh, around this, where he actually shows how a lot of charities, you know, played that function. But generally the Muslim leadership in particular, you know, they were being provided, you know, seemingly endless resources through prevent. But what they had to do was to sign up to it. 
So you end up in a situation where you want to get the access to the money, but you're also verifying that this thing is a legitimate tool at the yeah. same time. So unfortunately, we we hamstrung ourselves by 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 taking this money. Alhamdulillah, Cage, from the very beginning, you know, we we recognized that this was something that we would never go anywhere near. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're you know, it's our our youth that are um, are paying the price for a very short-term vision that Muslim leadership in the UK had when this prevent funding was first made available. And, you know, I think we'll suffer the consequences of that still for many years to come. Uh, Sufjan, you're on mute, by the way. Just got a notification to that effect. Uh, Brother Cameron, I was just saying, uh, if I can bring you in at this point, um, we heard a little bit about you based on your research on counterterrorism, what the Pakistani government did, and how it bent over backwards to American directives. We heard a little bit about, uh, I suppose, your um, your personal experience um, or what you know of the public in Pakistan. Um, but you, you've lived for quite some time now in Australia as well. Um, you spent considerable time here and you're a member of the Muslim Legal Network, which has obviously given you some um, you know, scope uh, to have mingled and interacted and networked with people in that field. Um, as a Muslim, as a young Muslim living in Australia, having seen, okay, well, my country back home is bent over backwards, I've then now come to Australia. Your experience sort of dealing with that reality as a young Muslim in Australia, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think um, the, 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 the move to the West and being sort of um, awakened to the reality of counterterrorism as it is pursued in the Western government is, is, is obviously a little bit different than how it is. Uh, how it happens in the Muslim world in in the West, I guess. Um, so I I came here um, in two thousand four initially, spent a couple of years in the school, then went back. But then since two thousand nine, I've been here uh, permanently. Um, and over the years, you you you've seen that on a social level, uh, the Western government have have started to to um, started this attempt to sort of reformed the Muslim community yeah. and created this binary divide between the moderate and the fundamentalist Muslim. And I use the term fundamentalist as opposed to extremist because, as Brother Asim um, mentioned, that even uh, the most fundamental things that a Muslim does, like, you know, sisters wearing hijab or, or brother wearing... Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, having a beard or praying five times, they became symbol of the bad Muslim, so to speak. So there was there, there was a deliberate attempt, and it's it's still going on, to create a divide within the community between the moderate and the fundamentalist, fundamentalist Muslim. But it's mainly really about how political the Muslim uh, the, that that particular individual is. It's not it's got nothing to do with violence. It's got nothing to do with radicalization, so to speak. It's more to do with whether or not that person is political about Muslim issues and critical of the Western government's foreign policies um, or not. If they are, then they are more likely to be fundamentalist. Um, if they are moderate or, or if they are non or apolitical uh, individual, um, they don't question uh, the, the, the policies they go about with the flow of the liberal Western values. And it's all fine and good. And the media obviously played a big part, a big, a big role into this. They furthered this divide of moderate and fundamentalist Muslim through its reporting of terrorist incidents, you know, you, and you see that happening even now, the way terrorist incidents are reported when the perpetrator is a white um, purpose, a, a purple, and he's, a, he's, he's considered as, as someone who has, uh, you know, pathological or psychological issues, where, whereas with, with the, um, uh, the, the Muslim, his, his inherent 
um, uh, sort of uh, nature of Muslimness is is highlighted, um, and so that obviously led to the rise in Islamophobia, which we saw with our own eyes here in Australia and, and learned about. Um, overseas as well. Um, and it, even commercial media like Hollywood became obsessed storytellers with the Islamoph- Islamophobic narratives and movies and uh, made sure that even when, you know, the wars staged and um, uh, perpetrated by the West are shown, depicted, at the same time, the, the individuals, the soldiers or the operatives are shown as as people to have humanity in them. People like Fatima yeah. Bhutto have, um, have, have written a lot about this. So, um, and, and now we know that, you know, straight after 9-11, there were meetings and collaborations between CIA and the Hollywood as to how to, to sell this narrative about war on terror. Um, and and um, um, I guess that's, that, that's been the type, of, the type of influence that a young Muslim has faced over the years um, in, in the Western world. Yeah, um, uh, thanks for that, Kamran. Um, speaking of young Muslims... Um, Zulfikar, um, I'll ask you this question. Um, now, lately, I don't know, maybe in the last couple of years, when I interact with young Muslims, I'm talking, say, sort of early university, late high school, things like that, um, and I'll mention things about September 11 or the war on terror, and they won't scratch their heads, but it just won't click to them, you know, what this September 11 issue was, and they know that it was something that happened in the past and the war on terror was something that happened Um but it kind of almost seems like this new generation doesn't quite appreciate just how defining that war on terror was or rather is on an entire generation. Like what could we say about keeping the lessons of the war on terror alive for a new generation um, that perhaps is not now living through that reality that we did? What can we do about that? Um. I just thought that it was amusing that you asked about young people by asking the one who's not a young person. Now, of course, you're young at heart. That's all that matters. <laughs> That's true. Um, in in the 1990s, right? I went I went to study in Hawaii, and on my flight there, there was this uh, in-flight movie or documentary, and it was a documentary about this this. Uh, traveling in China and it, it was a, a current documentary so this he had a guide and this this guy brought him all over China and finally he was brought to Xinjiang and the guide told him when you go to this place you don't have to be to, to worry about being cheated because these people are Muslims and they will wow. not cheat you right. so that was the environment that I was familiar with that when you talk about Islam, you talk about people with honor, people with integrity, people who who, who protect others. Islam is seen as, as good and beautiful. September 11th changed all that. When I when I was growing up, the, the evil empire was was Soviet Russia. Yeah. Right? The Soviet Union was the evil empire. And you know, everything that was bad. I, I hated the KGB when I was growing up. I thought the CIA were, were the good guys. Uh, and the KGB was this really evil group of people. Um, but now we are like the KGB and we we are the Soviet Union. We are the, the evil evil nation. And that is that that is not natural. It is it is a, a, an idea that has been created and perpetuated. My my position is that you know what? We can get back there. 
we can get back there not in relation to how others perceive us. We can get back there to how we perceive ourselves. Mm. Right? That we are trying to do good things. We are trying to to bring this this beautiful thing called Islam. We have been given this this gift, the best gift that's ever been given, and this is something that we are supposed to help to bring to humanity. Right? So this is something good. And we have to remember that that the the last 20 years is not natural. The last 20 years is not something that should define us and who we are. We define who we are. And we have to remember that we we as Muslims we bring the the best thing that's ever been that has ever been given to humanity. I think that that is some that is something that I would like to inculcate in my children and the young people. That be proud of who you are. You are Muslims, and that you have been given this wonderful thing, and it is your responsibility then to to try to bring this to others. Inshallah. 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 Um, this is a, a question. It's open-ended. If anyone wants to take it, otherwise I'll I'll nominate someone myself. Um, Zulfikar, you you speak about um, Islam, obviously, and, and and inculcating in our in the next generation the notion of Islam being a gift, the notion of Islam being a blessing. Um, obviously, that's not meant in a in a pacifistic way. You know, like there's been a war that's been waged, a campaign, and we we take it as you know Islam. Show them the beauty of Islam. I suppose that's the basis upon which you wage your own campaign to counter this. Maybe just a comment from yourself on that. Firstly, is that how you intended what you said? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I I cannot be accused of is of being a pacifist. Um, there's there's a lot of discussions, for example, in uh, in in Muslim countries that I'm familiar with about. Um, being minority and how the majority may take action against you. The thing for me is that we defeat ourselves. We are so afraid of the supposed power of the others, right? Yeah. Because we we refuse to act. The only reason why we are weak is because we refuse to to use what we have, whether in Singapore or in Malaysia or anywhere else, because we refuse to act. And I think a lot of the the problem is because we are too lazy to act. It's always someone else's problems. It's always someone else who, yes, brother, I will make dua for you. You know, yes, you know, may Allah grant you what? Because we do not want to do it. We don't want to take responsibility. And I think that if every one of us, if every Muslim, says that you know what this this society, this community is my responsibility, this world is my responsibility, I think inshallah there's a lot more that we can do. So, but the first thing is that we have to strengthen our belief in ourselves. Of course, we have to to believe that we have that strength. We have to believe that we have that em- emotional and intellectual power to make changes. And once we believe that, then we can do it, inshallah. And I suppose, and you know, those of us like yourselves who Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has, you know, for his for a wisdom that he understands best, he's taken you through a certain set of experiences. He's taken brother uh, Doctor um, Asim through a certain set of set of experiences. You know, and on the other side of those experiences came the activist in you. It, it, on the other side of Brother Kamran came the, you know, the legal mind, or came the the person who's got the insight to read the reality for what it is. Um, I suppose there's a lot that we've been through, you know, on the basis of which we can act. Um, uh, if our tech team can just put forward an image, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I've shared this with you guys before. Just a little ideological spectrum of the Muslim community. Um, Um, and I think we might not be able to view it as uh, as guests, but um, 
just having a look at this ideological spectrum here, you know, you have um, Muslims, various different types of Muslims in the community. Um, of, and I'm looking at the different ways in which Muslims react to the war on terror, to, you know, campaigns that may be waged against Muslims. And, 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 then they, and they question whether we can do something about it or not. There are those who will say that America is fighting the good fight. There are those who are saying, look, I'm, I'm totally sure. There'll be people, I'm sure, listening to this podcast who might say, that's all well and good, but that problem that you're talking about is just, just somewhere else. Right now, I've got to think of my kids. I've got to think of my law degree. I've got to think of my, um, you know, whatever else. Um, and you've got an entire spectrum, as we've, as we've mentioned before the podcast itself. Um, my question to you guys is, having a look at that spectrum, having a look at the, the range of that spectrum, um, especially at the, at the middle and towards the middle section where you've got various reasons being projected for why we can't step out, why we can't unfetter ourselves from the chains that hold us back. How would you address that various, various people within that spectrum with regards to how we can unfetter ourselves and try and be the best versions of ourselves in responding to uh, the war on terror? Dr. Asim, if you can kick us off. Nick, I think this is... Um... This is a difficult one because there's so much um, at play. There are so many different types of trauma that people are are going through that we're not like with like with anything else. You know, within a certain sociological context, to to remove the individual from all of their environmental factors and to see them just in terms of a specific stance that they hold, a specific ideological trend. That they're they're in, interested in or are adhering to makes it very very difficult to come up with very large conclusions sure. about um, you know you know where they are in that particular moment and and I think that's why you know if if you'll forgive me I'm not sure how helpful these types of categorizations are you know because ultimately we're complex human beings right. Yeah. We um, we make decisions based on personal experience, make decisions based on what we see going on in our family lives, in wider society. You know, you know, for those of us who have maybe slightly more years behind us, you know, you'll you'll notice a trend of what you were like maybe once when you were younger. What happens then when you get married? What happens then when you have children? You know, what happens when you see potentially your children? Uh, or your nephews and nieces, or people in the community taking stances that at one point you would have been very, very hard on. All of a sudden, you're maybe a little bit more humane towards. Right? There are there are all types of dynamics at play that should give us a sense of humility about where where Muslims are. And that's why the Hadith of the Prophet where he categorizes the different levels of Iman in terms of, uh, of Amal, right? Uh, it's very, very instructive for us because hatred in the heart for uh, an injustice or for a wrongdoing is not a passive act as sometimes people present it as. It's still an active process. The Prophet didn't condemn the person who hates something in their heart as somebody who was necessarily blameworthy, yes, there's a hierarchy that's been established here or action. Now, the best person is someone who, who removes a, a wrongdoing or an injustice with their hand. For sure, there's a hierarchy here. But the one 
who just hates it in their heart. The Prophet said, doesn't go on to say, and this person isn't the hellfire. Right? It's the opposite. Yes, of course. Right? It's still being praised, this person. But maybe for them, their specific test just relates to them holding on to that bit of iman in their heart to the extent that they're able to say to themselves, I don't like what's going on in the world because I love Allah and because I love Muslims and because I hate oppression. Right? Right? That that's still an active process. And I think because what capitalism teaches us uh, teaches us is that we have to be able to measure things at all times. Efficacy has to be measured by results, by empirical evidence that we have moved forward in X, Y, or Z way, right? Whereas we're not able to measure baraka, we're not able to measure iman, we're not able to measure certain things, right? Because, you know, capitalism hasn't taught us to, to, to value these things in the same way. And so maybe, maybe I'm getting a bit softer as I get older. I don't know. But when I, when I, when I see these types of, um, kind of categorizations, yeah. I'm less interested in them only because, uh, I feel that, you know, people are struggling in lots and lots and lots of different environments and, and they make sense of their relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, in, in a multitude of ways. And I think if we can if we can find ways of acknowledging that, being humble towards it, then we have a better chance of understanding where where we are. But I don't think any of these categories are are hard. If they were, then we wouldn't have uh, the dua, you know, of ya muqallib al right? Like we wouldn't we wouldn't even say that because otherwise we're just what we're saying is that these are these are rigid lines that we can't cross. And I think. At all times, in all circumstances, we can we can go across any of these lines as we should, as we should, inshallah. So yeah, that's my my take on no that. No worries, Jazakallah. Um, sorry if it doesn't answer you directly. That's okay. It's very insightful, nonetheless. Um, Brother Zulfikar, your thoughts on uh, what Dr. Asim was saying, or on my earlier question as well. I guess I guess the question is also rigidity of those categorizations aside, and if we can perhaps. Um, uh, how would I say this, conceptualize it a little differently. Um, if you look at some of those categorizations, essentially what it's saying is there are certain things, and I, I suppose we can do this in different ways, you know, like it doesn't have to be done in a way that's necessarily critical. You know, if I, I know as I put the question to yourself as someone who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed to be quite active in what you do, and this is to all three of you, um, you know, you wouldn't want to look at a categorize and say, oh, these people are prioritizing their family and I will come out and criticize them. So, of course, the style has to be done. You know, the style itself has to be very um, thought out and whatever else. But at the end of the day, Dr. Asim or, 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 or Zulfikar or Kamran yourself, you look at the statistics of what's happened. The, you look at the legacy that it's left on a mindset, uh, the idea of an, a generation being hijacked. And then you see you know, hundreds of thousands of Muslims who, for whatever reason, whatever journey they're going through, haven't gotten on board a program to actually partake, to respond even to a war on terror or a campaign of terror. How do you deal with that? Does that, does that conflict, you know, how do you reconcile that conflict? Like, should we be agitated by that kind of reality? I think you're on mute, brothers of the God. Sorry. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, I, I said some really beautiful stuff, so you guys just... We missed it. <laughs> You're yeah. going to have to say it again, brother, please, like, for the benefit of our audience. There's a couple of issues, I think, for me, right? One is that um, whatever role that you see for yourself, inshallah, as long as you're doing something and you, you believe in what you're doing, inshallah, there's, there's barakah in there. Inshallah, that's the role that you're supposed to take. So your role may be organizing an NGO, uh, like your brothers uh, are doing, um, or your role may be to engage with the government. Your role may be to to help to to go to to prisons to help the Muslims. Your role may be as a teacher. So all of us have our roles, right? And as long as we play our roles as best as we can, this amana that has been given to us, the 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 responsibilities, the trust, the the skills that Allah has given to us. As long as we make use of them in the best way that we can, inshallah, then this is what the community will, will grow. In terms of, there, there are people who are not able to do anything at all but dua. And if they can do that, alhamdulillah. But make sure that you do. Yep. Right? Make sure that you do something. Now, there are also, like you said, hundreds of thousands of millions of Muslims who are not doing anything and who do not want to do anything. Then for me, the responsibility falls to the rest of us who are involved to help them to see and to help and to help to activate them. So I was I was involved in marketing and sales, right? And you you'll have uh, if when you when you try to promote your company's products, there'll be those who like it, who those who do not like it, and so on. And every for me, the way that I looked at it, because I was involved in this, in uh, Islamic finance, the way that I looked at it is you keep on trying to move everyone from one step to the next. There may be people people who don't like you and speak against you actively, then what I try to do is just stop them from speaking actively against us, right? By showing them, you know, what we are doing and so on. Now, there may be people who are, who are in the middle, who are neutral, who refuse to get involved. Then what I try to do is just to get them to support. You don't have to do anything, just support. Just agree and just make noah. After that, get them to advocate. So the, the final position for me is once you support us, as, let's advocate for us or help us in some way. So that becomes my responsibility. And this is the responsibility of all of us who are active, who, who wants to see these communities to be strong, who wants to see this community to be active, to have agency, to recognize its own strength, to recognize its beauty, to try to activate those who are not doing anything. So, But the way that they do it is up to them because they have their own strength. So recognize and respect what they do and try to get those who are not doing anything to, to just take one step further, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, Brother Kamran, a question to you, uh, if I may. Um, Hamza's being quite, uh, I suppose, praiseworthy of Cage's initiative. So I think he's looking to establish Cage Australia, Asim. Just we'll we'll talk later, Asim. We'll talk later. later. <laughs> but my question to you, Kamran, is um, you're part of a, a, a legal network. You're part of a network. Um, just coming from that angle, um, you know, what scope do you see? What benefit do you see in, in that level of collaboration? How important do you think it is? You know, as if we had, for example, an NGO, the kind uh, that you, you know, Asim runs or, or manages in, uh, in 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 the UK. Um, if we had, you know, activists and writers and researchers like yourself and brother uh, Zulfikar in in one city, I want to see that level of collaboration. What benefit do you think that could bring about for us? Is that is that where the future is in terms of our war on terror, our war on the war on terror, if you will? I think so. I think I think that's 
That's that's a uh, that's something which we need to strive towards here in Australia. I think we, if I'm not wrong, um, and if I can remember correctly, we've even had that that discussion within our legal network, we, within MLN, as well as to how to do advocacy. Because one of one of the things that we do is regularly speak on issues which affect the Muslim. Um, issues here in Australia, including counter-terrorism laws and, and things like that. Obviously not at that scale, but we would like to 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 see the Muslim activity going up to that scale. But I just want to go back to why it's very important, especially for the young minds here in Australia, young Muslims here in Australia. And and Brother Asim um, uh, gave reference of the hadith, which is very worthwhile for, for every Muslim um, to keep in mind and, and to keep reminding ourselves uh, in light of that, I guess whatever level of faith you're on and whatever you can, I guess, um, um, depending on your circumstances, achieve to do, um, what you should do um, is educate yourselves about what's happening. And uh, once you start to educate, then you can advocate. Um, and organizations like CAGE uh, obviously um, uh, do both. They they educate people and they advocate for what's wrong in the society. And it's important to educate the young minds about the Western contradictions um, in the context of what's happened over the last 20 years. I mean, if I, if you look at even the media today of over what's happened in the past one month in um, in Afghanistan, um, we seem to be talking a lot about the takeover, the Taliban 1.0 versus Taliban 2.0, you know, the future of women and minorities in Afghanistan. And these are all questions which are extremely important. But what's missing over here is the accountability of the West, right? The contradictions of the political violence of the West, the wars that the West have waged, which ultimately led to the revival of Taliban. And the fact that the West is primarily responsible for what's, what's happened, not just in the past one month, but over the past 20 years. They literally went on a killing spree and left abruptly after 20 years with people literally falling off planes. And even while leaving, uh, the U.S. managed to... Um, struck civilians uh, by a drone strike and whatnot. So we need to push back against um, the idealism of Western liberal values so that ten, five years down the line or 10 years down the line, we don't hear of another humanitarian interventionism happening to rescue, you know, um, uh, the deficit of democracy in the Muslim, Muslim lands, for example. And even more on a political and ideological level, we need to be need to aware need to be aware of the Western liberal values and that they're not universal as they are made out to be. So, for example, human rights is a concept which is, which is adopted in the Western liberal discourse quite often. But we need to educate ourselves that even though it's espoused to be a universal framework, it was actually made by the Western uh, powers and the way it's deployed with the freedom of speech, you know, uh, being fine with ridiculing um, the religious texts and scriptures and and sacred personalities, but at the same time cracking down on the um, on the state um, um, uh, on the state treason and things like that. The way the way the whole human rights framework is deployed. Um, ultimately reinforces those Western liberal values as opposed to some universal values. So I think a, 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 um, a, an organization like CAGE um, is, is extremely needed here in Australia to educate and advocate for the, in that space. Jazakallah khair, um, Kamran. Look, um, we are slightly running out of time now, and by slightly I mean effectively almost completely. Um, 
So look, I, I guess my question would be twofold um, and sort of it's open-ended as well. Has the war on terror ended or does it continue in a more subdued, perhaps insidious form? Um, what does it look like now? Um, I, I know I'm asking something quite broad, but let's just try and um, um, keep it fairly narrow. But what does a war on terror look like now? Is it still going? Is it done and dusted? Do we move on from it? And the second part, I know it sounds like there was multiple parts of that, but the next is um, what lessons? What lessons do we need to learn from these preceding 20 years to take into our forthcoming 20 years and thereafter, inshallah? Um, and Dr. Asim, if you could uh, perhaps start us off and keeping in mind that we are running short, I know I asked a lot, but we're going to have to exercise the, the advice of Rasulullah and few words with much meaning, inshallah. Sure, sure, inshallah. Look, it's, it, it, for me, it's quite simple. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it usually is. So regardless of what you call the war on terror, if those policies continue, then we should continue calling it a war on terror because we don't want to create a discontinuity with what happened post 9-11 in terms of the invasion of Afghanistan, all the policies that were brought in. We don't want them to be able to rebrand the uh, you know oppression or repression that we face in all parts of the Muslim world and non-Muslim world, wherever we are, whether it's what's happening in UAE or Saudi Arabia, this is all part of the edifice of the global war on terror. So I think that's important that we always look at policies and practices rather than looking at the specific narrative that they are trying to uh, present us with. And uh, by all accounts, we are still living through a global war on terror, very much so. Um, and the second part uh, you were asking about, um, you know, lessons. what lessons we can learn. You know, so maybe ultimately, your I think number one takeaway. Yeah, yeah, not to be short-termist in our uh, ideas about how we respond, um, and for it not to be self-interested um, to the immediacy of our community's needs. I think we have to look at any kind of venture or policy as something. You know, how does this look 50 years from now for Muslims living in um, either the country that we're in or, you know, kind of globally? Um, we live in a neoliberal world where, you know, actions that we take in the West very much impact on, um, you know, kind of Muslims elsewhere. And so we always have to be aware of both time and space and how these things intersect with one another in relation to the decisions that, that we make. So, yeah, I guess that's it from you. Zakh Makhair. Zakh yourself? Um, in terms of the war on terror, if you look at the physical part of it, not as much as it used to be, but the ideas that allowed for it to happen and the ideas that uh, justify a lot of other policies that are bound with the war on terror, I think that has not... That, that does not just exist. I think it has strengthened over time. So the the ideas, the policies, and so on uh, are much much greater than it used to be. In terms of the lessons, for me, it is that we have a lot of ourselves to be weak as a community, as a society. We have a lot of ourselves to be weak, and we have allowed ourselves to be delinked from each other. We do not tap into each other's strength. We do not we do not seek to 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 work together. We do not seek to activate ourselves. And I think that is one of the biggest problems that we have. And I think that inshallah is what we need to do to strengthen ourselves 
not just not just in one way strengthen strengthen our din those who of us who can do it strengthen our economy strengthen our activism i think in all these different ways as muslims i think we need to 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 move a bit more just take that extra step inshallah yeah inshallah and uh kamran you've got the last word I obviously agree with, with what the brothers have already said, so I'll try and add, add, um, add very little to that. Um, I think the, the war on terror is very much alive. Um, we might be past the phase of the Western uh, kinetic action, so to speak, in the Muslim world, but there are the counterterrorism measures, the securitization, the surveillance of communities um, is all around the world is, is there. there. There's more powers in the shadows with the deep state as it used to be 20 years ago, even in countries like australia which is uh, which uh, you know says that it's a liberal liberal um, um society it's got it's adopted more counterterrorism laws than other western countries um in the last two decades about 92 counterterror laws uh, were enacted um uh, within the country which is more than um other western countries um and they include powers like preventative detention stripping citizens yeah, yeah. citizenship secret trials control orders for kids you know as little as age 14 um things like that and some of these laws have been used against not terror suspects but people like journalists and and whistleblowers mm. and things like that so the, the war on terror is there it's 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 very much alive and i guess we need to be aware of 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 where it's headed it's the 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 future of war on terror is is more is less on the battlefield and more on the political and the legal field um the west it is is obviously giving more support for anti-muslim blocks um um you know, like the the Israel and India and their oppression of Kashmir and Palestinian uh, people which is not directly uh part of the the, the war on terror project but they are linked because they they are allies of west in the repression of uh, the muslim communities so we need to educate ourselves and we need to advocate for that and one last thing i would say is basically going back to how i started is we need to be mindful of of the secrecy which which operates uh where these counterterrorism uh measures operate and uh, th- that secrecy has only been deployed in other contexts um in the past couple of years and with covid we've seen governments taking a lot of initiatives and decisions behind closed doors with very little information being shared by 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 public uh, in fact i was reading today that the australian government is actually pushing back releasing the vaccine agreement it signed with astrazeneca because of national security reasons mm. So we need to be aware that that which is the, the same warrant, context under which the counterterrorism laws were first Exactly. Exactly. So we need to be aware that other pretexts, other conditions, other circumstances will arise which will further provide the opportunity for secrecy and we need to push back against that. We need to educate and we need to advocate. Jazakallah khair. I think uh I think the lesson we've learned is that um we can actually have a podcast alone with any one of you if we really wanted to take the true benefit of your thoughts we really really appreciate you coming on tonight uh jazakumullah khairan brother zulfikar brother kamran and dr asim very much appreciate uh, your time tonight your thoughts uh and uh i suppose thank you all we've uh, had a lot of uh, comments it's very difficult we have read a lot of those comments it's very difficult to read those comments and not uh engage directly with them Um I think if we have a, a shorter guest list maybe one or two in in future we'll take a lot more comments on board but it's been a fiery comment section uh, we'll see if we can uh, respond to some of those comments uh after the podcast is over inshallah jazakumullah khairan 
Hamza, do you want to add any final words yourself? Uh, no, just um, thank you once again uh, to all our speakers. It's been a fantastic, worthy discussion. It's critically important that we continue to have these discussions. I, all of you, uh, all of the guests did mention things about educating ourselves, learning, being aware. Um, this is one humble effort amongst many uh, to just contribute to that. Um, so I guess for those still watching or listening and who've endured the entirety of the length of this podcast so far, um, like, subscribe, keep listening. We're going to try and pump out more content that is relevant, informative, um, and useful for, most, uh, for our community, inshallah. Um, but thank you very much. Um, a truly international cast here as well. Jazakallah khair. Thank you all uh, for being here. And uh, we can leave it at that. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.